Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy, our se our eighth session on Sir Thomas Mallory's *The Mort d'Arthur*, and uh, tonight we're going to see what we can do about finishing the Book of Arthur, the uh, the very first book of uh, uh, the very first section of the work. So, uh, lots of adventures the big theme tonight through runs throughout everything whether we get to cover it all or not is you know think twice before you mess with the lady of the lady of the lake i suppose really i mean if you put it all together the take-home message is you got to get in that preemptive beheading right off or else it's all downhill <laughs> against the ladies of the lake uh so uh you gotta be on the alert there um but anyway Let's uh, uh, let's let's jump. Well, okay. Two quick announcements or or sort of reminders, uh, things that I've announced before. But first, uh, we've got uh, tomorrow. Today's Wednesday. Yes, tomorrow. Uh, tomorrow's our next Mythgard Movie Club session, and it's going to be on the film Predestination, which is uh, of course based on a Robert Heinlein story. Um, uh, so that's going to be a lot of fun. So, uh, uh, so that's t tomorrow afternoon, and then. Uh, or tomorrow evening, sorry. Uh, and then uh, we have, um, of course, our next moot coming up, uh, which is growing closer now. We're only one month away uh, from Middle Moot in Kansas City. Uh, we've had some, some good signups for that. I hope that you'll be able to join us out in Kansas City this year. Uh, if you live anywhere in the central part of the country, hope you'll be able to make it down. Uh, going to be going to be a great time uh there so uh please make sure you don't forget to register for middle moot uh if you are anywhere in the greater kansas city area um all right well let's uh get straight into the action here lots of slides to cover tonight so let's see how we do um we were in the middle of finishing <clears throat> about two-thirds of the way through by numbers of quests uh, through the rather unusual events, uh, the sort of marvel of the day at King Arthur and Queen Guinevere's wedding, uh, which was, of course, that confusing business about the white heart and the bratchet and the knight and the kidnapped bratchet and the kidnapped knight and uh, Gawain, Sir Gawain, Sir Tor, and, and King Pellinor being sent off after them. We... Looked at Sir Gawain's quest when he covered himself in shame uh, by decapitating the lady as a direct consequence of his refusing mercy to a knight who was asking for mercy, um, both of which are pretty much equal black marks on his name uh, uh, as a knight. And then we were looking at... Um, Briefly, at Sir Tor's quest, which is much less eventful, uh, he, Sir Tor, of the three of them, is the one who sort of in the most uh, kind of straightforward way just sort of achieves his quest, uh, 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 you know, finishes with honor and uh, uh, and brings home the bratchet, right? Um, King Pellinor has almost as easy a time, uh, but for this one incident that happens near the beginning of his quest. Thon King Pellinor armed him and mounted upon his horse and rode more than a pass after the lady that the Kanik lad away. So remember, he's there's there's the the lady who says, "Hey, you took my bratchet," and then she gets captured, right? And as he rode in a forest, he saw in a valley a damsel sit by a well and a wounded Kanikt in her armus, and King Pellinor saluted her. That means he said hi, saluted essentially. And when she was war of him, she cried on loud and sighed, 
help me, Knicht, for Jesus' sake. But King Pellinor would not tarry. He was so eager in his quest, and ever she cried an hundred times after help. One she saw he would not abide, she prayed unto God to send him as much need of help as she had, and that he might feel it, or he died. So as the book telleth, the Knicht there died that was wounded, and wherefore for pure sorrow the laddie slew herself with his sword. Okay, so King Pellinor here is obviously not, this is not obviously not as bad uh, as doing what he did before. Not doing what he did, doing what Gawain did, right? You know, when you overcome a knight in fair combat and he begs for mercy, you grant it. I mean, like, there has to be some extreme extenuating circumstances. Uh, and even if there are extenuating circumstances, you generally don't just decapitate somebody who's kneeling there begging you for mercy, which is what uh, uh, Gawain was fixing to do. With King Pellinor, it's not the same situation, right? This is not quite as unknightly, right, uh, of uh, King Pellinor as it was of Sir Gawain. Um, he is so eager in his quest that he doesn't grant help that he could grant. This is still bad. I mean, this is, you know, King Pellinor is going to regret this. Um, uh, <laughs> Tarloniel says, could grieve these knights are such jerks. Um, I, I know, right? I mean, it's... Um, it's hard. King Pellinor's having a rough couple weeks here. I know. Uh, he's just not endearing himself uh, to the to the to the public here. I think. But uh, but it's hard because on the one hand, you know, this staying really focused on your quest and pursuing it no matter what, that is a knightly virtue here, right? But one of the things that that Mallory is setting up is a, a sort of a classic conflict of duties, right? Um, that is. You know, he, he does have the duty to stick to his quest. He, he, he said that he would pursue this. And, and keep in mind, this is not just, in a sense, the, the quests of Sir Gawain and Sir Tor were slightly more frivolous. I mean, frivolous is a hard word to use. I mean, there were quests that were given to them that they took in honor, um, you know, at the high feast of the, the you know, the, the wedding of King Arthur. So it's not like they, you know, there were, there were nothing. There was nothing riding on it. There was. But, you know, you're chasing a heart, you're pursuing a stolen dog. Um, you know, it's just not a huge deal. Whereas King Pellinor, like, a woman was abducted, right? So what we have, you know, we need to, we do need to imagine King Pellinor sort of torn between two ladies who are both needing his assistance, right? Um, there's this damsel who is, uh, uh, you know, b- 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 lamenting over this wounded knight, um, who, you know, which he has nothing to do with. And there's this lady who's being dragged off by a knight against her will, um, which is his job to go and, to go and fix. So, um, you know, the, the, it is possible to do, you know, a sort of defense. I mean, if I were, if I were briefed for King Pellinor's defense, right, if I were his defense barrister, uh, I would make my case something like this. I would say, look, King Pellinor, there are two ladies, both of whom are crying out for his assistance. Yes, this is the, this lady is crying out right before him, right? But the, the, other, the fact that he can't hear the other lady crying out for his help is just because she's further away, right? Um, but in no less need of his help. Indeed, more arguably because her state is something he could do something about, right? She's been captured by a hostile knight. 
you know, whom King Pelinor could beat the stuffing out of and save her, whereas it's unclear whether he can do anything for this wounded knight here. So if he turns away from his quest and tries to help this lady, he might not be able to help uh, her wounded friend, the knight here, uh, and uh, and then he would almost certainly lose the knight who's riding off uh, with the kidnapped lady. So, you know, I, this is... Uh, I do think that this is... I mean. Simply imagining King Pelinor going along and being like, I am on a self-important quest, right? And this lady saying, please, please, please help me. And him being like, talk to the hand, right? It could be made to sound pretty bad. I don't think it's actually as bad as that. I think this is intended to be a more um, a, a more difficult conundrum for poor King Pelinor than it might perhaps uh, seem at first. Um, but of course... It ends with another lady committing suicide with the with the sword of a dead knight, uh, which of course does happen all the time. I don't know, uh, uh, Arthur, whether the damsels are, are wearing red shirts, but it seems like they might as well do uh, at, at this point, essentially. Um, but um, yeah, it's uh, it's tough. Sarah's wondering: Is the lady's prayer actually a curse? Yeah, yeah, basically it is. She prayed unto God to send him as much need of help as she had, uh, and that he might feel it or he died. That means before, uh, 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 ere he died, essentially, uh, prior to his death. Before you die, I hope that you are sometime in as much need of help as we are Um and uh, you know, to to you know, basically, she is she is she is praying that King Pelinor be put in the same position that she is in, uh, so that he can come to appreciate uh, the despair that he is leaving her in. Um, David Atley is is wondering if is asking God for this kind of help sinful. Um. Well. Yes. I'm going to go ahead and go with yes on that one. I cannot imagine that the church would condone this sort of thing. I think the church would condemn this sort of thing on several fronts, actually. Um, uh, Like, trying to use God as an instrument of vengeance is, like, double or triple sketchy. Uh, I mean, this is a natural kind of... uh, expression of grief on her part um but yeah this is this is not uh uh this is not a generally uh sanctioned um uh uh sort of prayer uh to pray definitely veronica says not to mention slaying yourself yeah also a big deal which does kind of suggest veronica that perhaps this woman, when she's praying this prayer, is perhaps not in the optimal sort of spiritual place, essentially, to put it lightly, right? Um, so, yeah, um, it's, um, uh, it's, yeah, this is, uh, uh, this is, this is, this is, this is a bit, it's, yeah, suicide's a big deal. You wouldn't know it from the way people are carrying on. Right. Um, uh, Suicide and in particular suicide for love. Um, There was no implication. Remember back with Uther Pendragon at the very beginning, um, who was uh, suffering from pure sorrow and anger uh, at being his love being thwarted. Right. Uh, His desire, at least being thwarted um, at the beginning. Now, he wasn't threatening to kill himself at any point. It hadn't sort of progressed to that point. Um, But people who are either feeling that they're uh, their love condition is going to be terminal itself, 
or that they're going to kill themselves either actively like this damsel does with the sword um, or passively like uh, Sir Peleus is later uh, going to be doing, which I hope to get to tonight. Um, that is by planning to go to bed and stop eating until he dies. Um, uh, that's also it's still suicide, just slightly more protracted. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, Nancy, you're right. I, I mentioned Uther because he he did suspect that his case might be terminal, right? I mean, like death was on the was on the table, right? He 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 was concerned about. This that again, he wasn't on the cusp of death, and he certainly wasn't threatening suicide. But I mean, it's love is a high stakes game. That's something we certainly see, right? Uh, if there's one thing we can learn from the corpses of damsels strewn around the countryside in these early quests, it's that loving uh, and being beloved is a is a very high stakes um, high stakes situation. Um, and uh, David, this is uh, this is uh, a common element. Yes, it's a common element uh, in medieval romance. Definitely, um, uh, we see people both langu- you know, dying because they are languishing for love. This is a very serious complaint, um, and it's also you know that that you would commit suicide uh, when your love is thwarted or when you discover that your lo- your beloved is untrue or something like that. Um, this is this is a thing that happens with some regularity in medieval romance. So um, it's definitely part of the world that uh, Maori is kind of entering into from a literary perspective, right? Um, yeah, now, James uh, Stevens, I agree. You know, James is pointing out that uh, you know Balin at least tried to stop the damsel from killing herself, right? And his failure to stop her from killing herself is is what led to his, uh, uh, you know, striking the dolorous stroke, right? Um, and yeah, James, the thing I would add there is when you see like what Sir Gawain does and what King Pelinor does or what King Pelinor fails to do here. Um, doesn't it make Sir Balin look better and better, right? <laughs> Doesn't in retrospect Sir Balin uh, kind of come across better and better? Uh, again, even, uh, you know, and um, I know, uh, 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 oh, who was it who was saying this? Oh, Jennifer at the beginning was saying, uh, you know, when I was making the joke about the preemptive decapitation of the uh, of the Lady of the Lake, she was like, Sir Balin did something right? Well, you know, again, in retrospect, it's harder and harder to blame him. Uh, but anyway, um, uh, Tara's wondering if uh, committing suicide by a damsel is considered the female equivalent of a knight dying in battle. Well, that's hard. Hard to say. There isn't really an equivalent. I mean, I can see what you mean in the sense, Tara, that, you know, being uh, uh, being involved in, you know, sort of high-level courtly love relationships is uh, sort of the the, you know the battlefield for women, right? I mean, it's the, it's the sort of the, the, the greatest game that they get to be a part of, uh, in that. Um, and so, but it's just, it's not the same. I mean, you know, the, the, the sense of like putting yourself on the line, uh, for, you know, to, 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 to prove your worship, right. To, uh, uh, to defend, uh, you know, uh, what is right and things like that. That's not always the number one reason you do it, but, but it's often a reason. There's just, there's no real equivalent for that with ladies. Um, I mean, you'll notice 
you know, Terra in some ways, the closest thing that we get as an equivalent, it's not like committing suicide is especially like particularly virtuous among women that like you'd, you know, uh, you'd cement your reputation by doing so or something like that. Um, but the, think about the role that Guinevere plays with Gawain, right? And just the last, you know, just a couple slides back uh, at the end of last time, um, when she forms up an inquest of ladies, right? You know, she sort of appears at the head of a judiciary panel of ladies. Um, uh, that I think is pretty much the, the highest sort of independent on or independent meaning independent of like the political status of their husbands or anything, um, that a woman can achieve. Guinevere is doing something fairly significant there, um, in, uh, in sort of passing judgment on Sir Gawain and sentence on Sir Gawain, right at the head of this, uh, of this quest of ladies. Um, so, uh, uh, Tara, that's the that's where I would what I would go to as sort of the nearest sort of equivalent. But again, there's there isn't really a, there's there's not competition, right? Uh, in the same way, so it's just not the not the same. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. David Erbach is wondering: Would they count a damsel's love to be unworthy or untrue if she refused to kill herself for sorrow at her lover's death? Well. I don't know about that. See, I, I don't know that suicide is required, you know? Um, it's, like, understood, but I don't think it's... I don't think it's... Um, uh, I don't think it's required. Um, it, I, As far as I can see, it's perfectly okay to like languish in misery for a really long time. I don't think anyone's going to, going to be like, why haven't you off yourself yet? Um, I don't think so. I think that, um, the only, the only thing that's really shameful is being unfaithful, right? Whether that means, um, you know, cheating, uh, you know, just giving your love to somebody else when you've promised it to another or, uh, um, or even just like, you know, kind of being fickle, right? Changing your mind, um, falling away, you know, uh, that's serious, serious negative consequences. Um, uh, Jennifer's wondering if you could build a fancy tomb for your dead lover, uh, and live out your life tending it. Yeah, no, I think that would be acceptable. I, people would, would, would take that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and yes, Milthalio, uh, uh, just to, 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 to be clear, it is absolutely true. That suicide, uh, suicide is a very serious deal, and you see why, right? The the medieval church was sort of ruthlessly logical about suicide. Um, think of the mechanisms involved, or let me tell you about the mechanisms if you don't know the mechanisms involved. How is sin forgiven? Right, you are forgiven through the death of Christ, but the death of Christ, like the the forgiveness of Christ is uh, uh, sort of brought to you, is it, sort of uh, acquired by you, right, through the sacraments, uh, through confession, right, and absolution that comes after confession. That's what last rites are about, right? You need to be shrived. You need to be confessed. Um, you need to confess your sins and be forgiven of your sins, uh, and that's why last rites is a thing, right, so that you can die um, cleansed, 
of your sins. And logically speaking, of course, suicide is the only sin, the only sin for which it is theoretically impossible to repent and confess and be forgiven, right? Because it's too late, right? You literally can't. So they were, it's not that they were like suicide is the absolute most horrible thing that anyone can do. I mean, you can see this, for instance, like in Dante's Inferno, it's it's not, uh, suicide is not at the bottom of the chain or anything. It's there, right? We do meet the suicides uh, uh, in, what was it, the sixth circle of hell, I think, but um, out of nine. Um but it's not like it is the greatest of all possible sins. It's just the only one that you cannot possibly, like, in the moment of your death, when the moment of your death is a mortal sin, you have committed murder, right? At the moment that you died and you can't possibly be uh, uh, be cleansed of that sin, logically. So, again, they were ruthlessly logical uh, with the application um, uh, of that. Sharon, exactly. Sharon is remembering that this is Hamlet's explicit rationale for not killing Claudius while he was praying in Hamlet, you remember, right? He's worried that if he kills, like, that that his father, Hamlet Sr., uh, was killed without the opportunity for confession, right? Um, whereas if he kills Claudius now while Claudius is praying and confessing his sins... Now, notice, Sharon, Hamlet is already getting all Protestant on this, Right. Like as if like to a medieval Catholic <clears throat> kneeling in a your private closet in prayer wouldn't really have anything to do with being shriven of your sins. Right. Because you have to undergo the uh, sacrament uh, of confession and absolution uh, if you're a medieval Catholic. Whereas, again, it's one of the sacraments that the Protestants jettisoned. Right. Um, but anyway, but still, it's the same idea. You're absolutely right. The, the same the same kind of uh, uh, kind of. Uh, kind of impulse. Um, Mathalio, exactly. When you commit suicide, you rob yourself of the opportunity of absolution. Murderers can be forgiven. It's not like murder is the unforgivable sin. It's not. Um, but if you kill yourself, you it's logically impossible for you to be absolved. So, um, um, yeah, anyway, um, so that's, um, uh, that's, yes, but see, here again, in uh, um, in one, <laughs> I see people debate. What if you, what if you mortally wound yourself, leaving yourself time to repent and be forgiven before you bleed out or something? You know, it has to have happened. Like there has to be a case uh, on the books of that. I'm not sure how it was handled, but uh, um, uh, yeah, I, I, theoretically that would work. But um, yeah, not really sure. Um, but anyway, um, yeah, exactly. Nancy says good old religious rules lawyering. That's exactly, that would, uh, would be exactly it. Um, <laughs> anyway, the point though, the larger point that I want to make is this is one of many times, uh, when you see not only in medieval literature as a whole, um, but that we will see in Mallory, uh, you know, there's, there's a gap between theory and practice, right? Or at least... Well, that is undoubtedly true. It is also true that there's a gap between theory and story, right? Um, 
the stories that we tell are often things that don't line up with what we actually believe. I've already talked about this in, in like judicial combat, right? Judicial combat, not only, it's not like it's a thing that the church has just recently condemned. The church condemned that ages ago. It's never been okay. Uh, I don't it's, it's never been okay in the Middle Ages for there to be judicial combat. The church condemned that. Um, and yet, it's a thing, right? Because it's part of the story tradition. So the story tradition is very, very much alive in the story tradition, even though it doesn't like normally official, um, um, it, it doesn't, you know, normally officially happen. Um, so anyway, um, this is just a, a th- it's one reason why you always do have to be careful. You have to be careful with uh, thinking about stuff like that. That is to say, we can know that suicide is a really big deal, and it clearly was. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we are safe using that as a framework to uh, uh, direct our own responses to the story. That is to say, I, I do not get the sense at all that as we're seeing these damsels dropping right and left... Um, I mean, how many damsels have impaled themselves with their lover's swords already at this point, right? I mean, it's a lot, uh, and we're only a fifth of the way through the book. So, um, and do I get the sense that Mallory is expecting us to to hear like a story like this and be like, oh my goodness, and she's going straight to hell? No, I don't think so. It's sad. It's tragic, right? Think about think about the Sir Balin case, right? When Sir Balin attempts and fails to prevent the lady killing herself, right? The 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 beloved of the Prince of Ireland, right? Um, uh, the one for which he got sort of sentenced to the dolorous stroke. Um, he, when Merlin comes and condemns him, he doesn't condemn the damsel. Merlin doesn't. Right. It's all about like Sir Bal and it was your duty to make sure she didn't do this. Right. Um, you know, you should have tried to like she was in a sense under his protection because he was right there. Right. You should have stopped her, he says. But he's not like because now she has damned her soul for all eternity. That never comes up. Right. Um, it's sad. It's a loss. It's tragic. Um, but it's not. uh it it can also be, and this, Tara, kind of comes back to your question from before, it can also be just a little bit heroic, right, uh, as well, in the sense that it does, I, I know, I, it's not like it's required, as I was saying before, it's not like people are going to look down on you if you don't kill yourself under circumstances like this. Uh, at least, again, I don't get that impression, um, like everyone's assuming that the logical thing for you to do when you're... Uh, you know, when your lover uh, is killed in battle is to go and kill yourself and that you're a slacker if you don't. Again, I don't see that. Maybe I'm wrong, but I don't see that. Um, However, it is, nevertheless, if you do do that, it seems that people are not going to be condemning you. Within the world of this story, people are not going to be condemning you. They're going to be mourning you, but also, you know, you're going to be an exemplar of of love, right? So, um, again, one way to think about it, this is fantasy that they're writing, right? Thomas, Ma- Sir Thomas Mowry knows he's writing fantasy here. Um, 
this is like an alternate universe in a sense. Often the rules of the real universe come into play, but it's, you know, think of even the, uh, the uh, like the adultery stuff. Sometimes we see I mean, the, the world that ladies live in, uh, in these romances is sometimes really horrible, um, though perhaps horrible in different ways than the real world would have been horrible. Um, uh, not to say the real world was always horrible, but it was often horrible. And when it was, it, it was not usually horrible in the same ways uh, that uh, the, the thing that most, you know, young women had to fear was not like being locked up in a tower, you know, by their uh, wicked, old, impotent husband, um, lest a dashing, virile young knight come along. Um, th- that's not, that wasn't the normal experience of the average medieval woman. They're, again, they're often, their lives were horrible, though in other ways, because this is an alternate universe, right? Um, this is a, this is, this is fantasy. Um, and I think that there are definitely ways, some particular ways in which we can see there's this kind of suspension of disbelief, right? Let's like, okay, in the real world, if this were to happen in real life, Yes, like the 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 priest would be saying we're remember again uh, Sharon back to Hamlet right um, you know we're going to be uh, really it's unlikely right that Ophelia is going to get buried uh, in consecrated ground which you'll remember was an issue the grave diggers were um, uh, were talking about that right now at least Ophelia's suicide was not you could. You could argue that it was an accident, right? So you can kind of uh, justify bearing Ophelia from Hamlet in, consecra- in consecrated ground. You can't uh, justify burying someone like this in consecrated ground, and they wouldn't have. Right? Again, so in real life, you know, she's going to be buried at the crossroads, um, uh, uh, you know, and uh, not. In, in, so there would have been real, but that, that that doesn't come up in the story because it's fantasy, right? And in this fantasy. The story of um, um, the story of true love and the effect of love and the the what people are driven to by the passions of love that's a big part of the, the fa- this particular fantasy world uh, element. Um, yeah, both Veronica and Creator are saying, uh, uh, yeah, death by childbirth. Yes, yes, yes. Your thirty-three percent chance of dying in childbirth is one of is a perfect example of how. Your life is going to be <laughs> may well have been horrible in a different way. That does not often feature. Uh, there are not very many stories um, of wives dying in childbed. It just it's it does not happen very often in medieval stories, though it happened a lot uh, in the medieval world, of course. Um, but uh, yeah, Mike says being overwrought about love is a virtue in stories of this kind. Yes. Sort of, kind of. Uh, again, what I'm wanting to do here, I've been trying to resist, though I'm being sloppy here this evening, uh, trying to resist talking about courtly love because it's dangerous. There, it was a whole thing, right? I mean, it was there was a whole elaborate system built up. The thing that I, the reason I'm being cautious about it is not that I'm like, uh, you know, trying to cast doubt on whether or not it was really a whole thing. It totally was. But the question is, we you don't want to just assume that like every work written about courtly love prior to Mallory applies here, right? He's not. Yes, he's working within that tradition, but it doesn't necessarily mean uh, that he is um, 
it it doesn't necessarily mean that he's uh, using it all and we don't know what bits he's using, you know. So again, what we're best off doing is sort of seeing what um, what we can build from within here, right? And Mike, I agree, your word overwrought is a good one, right? One of the things that we see in this text so far, we don't see a lot of, uh, just to, to give a couple of examples quickly. One of the primary elements of courtly love stories throughout the High Middle Ages um, are the demandingness of the lady, right? That she is going to insist that the knight prove himself in various and often outlandish ways, right? That's not been a major element so far. Not to say it's never going to come up and we're going to see a shadow of it in a sense uh, later today if we ever possibly get there. But, um, but, but that's not been a, a primary thing that we've seen, right? The idea of the lady as the dominant ruler whom the knight is serving um, as a servant and who is at her will and that she can command him to do whatever she wants him to do and he is bound to do it as her lover in order to prove his truth and faithfulness. That was a huge element of the courtly love tradition and we've not seen that, right? So, you know, so again, I don't want to be assuming like, well, this is one of the elements of courtly love, so it must be in in place here. Well, maybe it's not. Maybe Maurer's not interested in that. Um, However, clearly, one of the things that he is interested in is this this whole element of love as an overmastering passion, which, like, when you are... Uh, love is a thing that happens to you, like, whammo, out of the blue, and you can't fight it, and you it, it, it consumes you, and it drives you to do often irrational and sometimes horrible things, right? Um, like, remember uh, Sir Balin's very brief friendship with the guy who uh, decapitates his unfaithful beloved and uh uh and her lover uh and then kills himself right you know like it that's the kind of thing we've seen so far this is the kind of thing we've seen so far the like i'm gonna i'm so upset at the death of my lover that i'm gonna run myself through with his sword um that's um um that's that's exactly the kind of thing that he seems to focus on uh, uh, so far, uh, Stephen, yeah, that's a really interesting, uh, comparison. Um, uh, Stephen says, uh, uh, Stephen Cover says, uh, like in modern times, zombies are a popular theme in stories, but not every author, uh, follows the same rules about zombies. Yes, exactly. Or vampires, I would say similarly, right? Uh, just because it's a vampire story doesn't mean that everything that, you know, Bram Stoker said about Dracula applies here, right? Um, yeah, exactly. So the best thing to do when you're reading a vampire story, again, don't rely on what you know about Dracula, right? You got to read the vampire story and see how do the rules work here. Um, similar, similar kind of, uh, kind of premise here. Um, anyhow, uh, but yeah, I would say so far, I do think, um, uh, uh, Mike, just as you were suggesting, um, the, the dominant element of the uh, love the you know the, the the yeah the amorous angle of the of these stories has been the overwhelming overmastering passion of love and what it how suddenly it comes how little choice you have about it really and and what uh, extremities it drives you to do um, okay but let's keep going so um, if only we knew more about this lady who just killed herself 
uh, and what would happen here. Uh, but fortunately, we briefly still have Merlin. Um, King Pelinor comes back and reports back about his quest. Ah, King Pelinor, sighed Queen Guinevere. You were greatly to blame that ye savoured not this laddie's life. Madam, said King Pelinore, ye were greatly to blame, and ye will not save your own life, and ye might. Look at that. Here's King Pelinore being like, it's your job not to commit suicide, lady, not mine. <laughs> All right, Pelinore. But, salve your displeasure, I was so furious in my quest that I would not abide, and that repentest me, and shall do, dies of my life. Truly, you ought sore to repent it, said Merlion, for that laddie was your own doctor, all oh, snap, begotten of the laddie of the rule, and that knicked that was dead was her love, and should have wedded here, and he was a raked god knicked of a young man, and would have proved a good man. And to this court was he coming, and his name was Sir Miles of the Loundis, and a knicked come behind him and slew him with a spear, and his name was Lorraine le Savage, a false knicked and a cowherd. And she, for great sorrow and dole, slew herself with his sword, and her name was a line. And because ye wold not abide and help her, ye shall see your best friend file you, when ye be in the greatest distress that ever ye were, other shall be. And that penounce, God hath ordained you for that deed, that he that ye should trust most on, trust most on, of any man on liva, he shall leave you there, ye shall be slain. You forthinketh it, said King Pellinore, that thus shall me betide, but God may well fordo destiny. Okay, uh, so first of all, um, so you'll notice I was saying before that I think that it was indeed a sinful request and that this uh, prayer would not be approved. I stand by that statement, right? Despite the fact that Merlin says, this is just what God's going to do, right? Again, this is how the fantasy world works. And you could kind of smell that, right? When she said it, you know, when she prayed that prayer, again, if our response is like, Mm, I think this is not only testing the Lord your God, but testing the Lord your God in a fairly inappropriate way, right? Uh, I think that God is unlikely to grant that prayer, and I think it's probably sinful to make that prayer. Um, but that's not the world we're in. Obviously not the world we're in, right? Um, again, I still think that that's probably what a real actual living priest would have said, but that is not, uh, that's not Merwin's logic. And that's not uh, that's not how this story works. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, so let's see. Hang on a second. Um, <laughs> Nancy is wondering how many children Pelinor has strewn about the countryside. David Attlee was thinking the same thing. I know. I know. Yeah. Um, uh, David Erbach and, and uh, Arthur are both wondering about him being a cowherd. Um, uh, he's not. I, I don't think that this means that Sir Miles. No, not Sir Miles. Uh, Sir uh, uh, Lorraine Le Savage uh, literally herds cows, like Ares the cowherd, who was the uh, unwitting foster father uh, of Sir Tor. Right. Um, uh, no, he was literally a cowherd, and 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 they meant no insult uh, in calling him a cowherd because he literally herded cows, right? Um, but I think that Lorraine Le Savage calling him a cowherd does mean uh, what uh, 
that means coward, I believe, in the modern sense. Um, so yes, the the modern word coward derives from cowherd. That's exa- It's another one of those uh, villain words, right? Which was originally a class marker and became a, uh, a, 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 a an insult of virtue, right? Um, yeah. So. Um, yeah, yeah. Several of you are remarking on the, uh, uh, well, I was trying to decide between saying prolific or never mind. Anyway, yeah, all of the above. Uh, yeah, King Pelinor has apparently, apparently been a busy guy, uh, and he doesn't know this daughter either. Um, but. Um, yeah, so, Joe, self your displeasure. Um, but, so, self, that's like save. Um, save your displeasure. Um, I was so fear. So, like, uh, it doesn't mean despite. It means, like, um, I can't think of a good, uh, a good modernization of that phrase. Um, but, uh, uh, Oh, I can't think of a good way to say this. Um, this phrase survives for a long time. Um, uh, like you can still hear people in 19th century novels saying the same phrase. Um, uh, things like, uh, but save your honor. It means something like vaguely like, excuse me. Right, um, you know uh, that is self your displeasure. I was so furious in my quest. He's like so, you know, like I like acknowledging that you are unhappy, that you don't like this, right? So he's like kind of excusing him. He's acknowledging that she doesn't approve of his action, but he's gonna like explain or defend his action, and he's not saying like I'm ignoring or I don't care about how you thought of it. I'm acknowledging how you thought of it, but I'm gonna explain you know, why I did it and what I was thinking. If anybody can think of a good way to a good modernization of that phrase, but save your displeasure. I was so furious in my quest. Um, I can't, um, uh, I can't, I can't think of, uh, I can't think of, of it with all due respect, something like that. Yeah. At least that word, that phrase is often used in a similar way. Um, yeah, with all due respect, is an interestingly applied phrase. Often, I think, um, but yeah, yeah, that's actually a pretty good, a pretty good modern translation. I think of that phrase. Um, <laughs> Nathaniel says, "I know you're upset, but something like that, something like that." Yeah. Um, uh, no offense, Mike. That's interesting. Yeah, something like that. Um, Joe is wondering: is, Does he mean it disrespectfully? No, no, no. He's he's being respectful, right? Um, he again, he's he is uh, he he's sort of. Um, if he just said, you know, if she said, "You were greatly to blame that you saved not this lady's life," and he was like, um, "Dude, I was so furious on my quest that I wouldn't abide." Like it could sound like he's just dismissing her. Right. So by adding that phrase, he is conveying, I am not dismissing your reaction, but I'm explaining. Right. So it is it is meant respectively, respectfully. Um, yeah. Yeah. Begging your pardon. Yeah. In a sense. Yeah. 
actually, in some ways. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I think those things give that convey the kind of the general sense of it, but that's a tough one. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Um, all right, what else was I going to Oh, so yeah. Uh, his, so uh, people are asking about the Lady of the Rule. I have no idea. Uh, the Lady of the Rule, that sounds like a big deal, right? I have no idea who the Lady of the Rule is. Uh, I, I mean, yeah, no, I've I, 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 I got nothing on the Lady of the Rule. Um, I mean, when you talk about the Rule with a capital R, <laughs> I mean, it generally means... You're generally talking about like a monastic or fraternal order when you talk about the rule, like the Benedictine rule or the Augustine, uh, the, uh, the Augustinian rule, uh, or something like that. That is the the, the set of oaths that uh, that uh, uh, you know a monk or a nun or a friar swears to. Um, I cannot imagine. So I I can't imagine that Merlin is saying, "Oh yeah, you remember that like abbess that you slept with? This is her daughter." I I can't believe that that's what he's saying, and that he would say it that way. Um, yeah, I, I I so I don't really. Like I said, that's that's the only thing I got for rule with a capital R, and it just does not make sense to me. So I think it can't be right. So I have no idea. I have no idea. Um, yeah. So, um, okay. Dolores Stroke says there was a, there was a devotion to Our Lady of the Rule started by St. Augustine. Okay. But still identifying her as the Lady of the Rule. I still don't, I still don't see, uh, how this, but yeah, Tarlaniel says, I don't ever let Pelinor into your convent. Under the circumstances, given his track record, I'm saying that's that's a good plan <laughs> anyway. I don't know that I would want uh, uh, King Pelinor uh, in uh, a convent, really. Um, but, um, yeah, who knows? Who knows? Again, I think if 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 she were the daughter of an abbess or something, uh, that, that would have been made a slightly bigger deal of. But you know, maybe not. Um. Anyway, so the lady's prayer slash curse comes back on him and comes back on him as a curse slash prayer, right? Because of this, what she prayed is going, in fact, to come back around on him. And notice that Merlin calls it a penance. That's a that's a that's an important word. It's a weighted word. Um, I mentioned confession and absolution before as the mechanisms by which forgiveness and thereby salvation comes, right? Well, there's a cent- there's a middle term, right? What comes between confession and absolution? Penance is what comes between confession and absolution. Um, so by characterizing this as a penance, it's interesting because it sounds like a curse, right? Um, and, uh, uh, yes, yeah, so, I mean, it, it, it sounds like a curse and here's Merlin saying, no, 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 it's not a curse. It's a penance, right? God is going to ordain this penance for you for that deed. And that's good, right? That's a good thing. Um, it's a good thing because penance is good. Uh, even if penance is 
painful, even if penance is, is, you know, seems undesirable and bad bring in the sense of bringing suffering or whatever. Um, it is for a good end. It is part of the absolution process. It's part of the cleansing process. So Pelinor is not going to be like exactly punished for this. He's going to be set a penance for this, which from the outside looks a lot like a punishment, um, but is not, but is ultimately for his good and not for his ill. In other words, um, so anyway, um, notice one last thing here, Pelinor's final statement. Me forthinketh it, that thus shall me betide. Um, you know, basically he's saying, okay, I wish that weren't the case, right? Uh, I would gladly have it otherwise, but God may well fordo destiny. God might change his mind, right? God might make it happen otherwise. He says at the end, Merlin has just predicted what's going to happen. And Pelinor's response is, well, it's not carved in stone yet, right? You know, lots of things can happen. We'll see. Um, Which is a really interesting response, especially in this context with Merlin, as we've been kind of talking about before. Um... Uh, with all of Merlin's predictions, right? Pelinor's one of the first people who hears a prediction that Merlin says and is like, yeah, maybe so, maybe not. We'll see how it pans out, right? Um, and that's really interesting that he has that, uh, that, that, that response. And yes, several of you are pointing out that uh, Nancy says, uh, you know, I said it wasn't carved in stone yet, and, and uh, Nancy says, which is odd, given Merlin's track record. Yeah, he should have thought to carve it on something first. So we'll see. We'll see, yeah. Uh, he hasn't gotten out the gold paint, Mithaliel, so, you know, it could, it might still be all right. We'll see. Um, but um, we'll come back to that subject in, uh, in just a minute. First, the very end uh, of the wedding is a really interesting moment uh, because this is the this is where we get the oath that uh, Arthur uh, institutes for the Knights of the Round Table, right? And you know we've talked about places where like we're looking for the guidance of the text in 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 telling us like what are the what are the virtues, right? What are the like the 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 standard for judgment of whether or not a thing is a good thing or a bad thing within the story? Well, here's a good one, right? Um, here's the actual oath that Arthur's knights are taking. So, okay, thus when the quest was done of the wheat hert, the which followed Sir Gawain, and the quest of the brachet, which followed Sir Tor, King Pellinor's son, and the quest of the Lottie that the Knecht took away, which at that time followed King Pellinor. Than the king stablished all the Knechtes and gaff them riches and londes, and charged them, here we go, and charged them never to do uturage, nor morther, and always to flee treason, and to give mercy unto him that asketh mercy upon pine of forfeiture of their worship and lordship of King Arthur for evermore, and always to do ladies, damsels, and gentlewomen, and widows, succor, strength him in herictis, and never to enforce them upon pine of death. Also, that no man talk no battiles in a wrongful quarrel for no love, nay for no world is goddess. Okay. So what do we see here? Um, 
<laughs> and Nancy says she threw that one right, threw that one in for Sir Gawain. Uh, I'm thinking, you know, when he talks about never to enforce them upon pain of death, you know, I mean, is he, is he, you know, looking over his spectacles at uh, at at King Pelinor here? I don't know. Um, yeah, Karina's wondering for a clarification: the rules about how to treat women are these all about upper class women? Um, uh, yeah, yeah, no, that's fairly explicit, right? Lotties damsels and gentlewomen uh, and widows. Um, does that mean poor widows might kind of sneak in the back door there? Maybe. Uh, possibly. But yeah, no, it's mostly noble women. Um, yeah, that's... Uh, you can't really hide from that fact. Um, but, uh, but as long as we're on the subject, what are we supposed to do with women? Okay. Uh, we've got... Um, uh, to give them succor. Right to help them when they need help, uh, and notice what is explicitly pointed out. Like the kind of succor that they're most likely to need is to strengthen him in herictus, which is really interesting. Right, women will often have men who try to take away their rights, like if they own property or if they are inheriting property. Uh, so, like, say you've got the only child of a landed person who is a, a woman, right? And, and a knight comes in and says, hi, I'm going to come in and capture you and marry you by force. And then I get all your lands, right? Um, that's the kind of thing that uh, Arthur's knights are being strictly enjoined to get in the way of, right? Um, strength, women in their rictus. Widows as well, right? Widows inherit the property of their husbands. Uh, a widow um, is one of the only uh, sort of women, uh, class of women, who really do and can and did uh, historically uh, operate on a sort of equal playing field from an economic standpoint and political standpoint uh, with men. Just ask the wife of Bath. That's why she's a professional widow. Um, But anyway, um, so uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so um, Let's see, what was I what was I doing now? Oh yeah, so you you're gonna strengthen in Herictus and not to enforce them upon pain of death. Right? So that's a big deal, right? Now and now, is this a declaration against sexual violence? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. I mean that's obviously covered in this. But this is there's this is more than that as well, right? Again, that that scenario that I was just describing. About like the knight who comes and says, I'm going to marry you and therefore get all your lands. Such a knight would also be enforcing that woman in this context. Right. So you're supposed to help anyone who's in that situation. And oh, by the way, uh, it might go without saying, but I'm going to say it anyhow. Don't you be the aggressor in that situation or you'll be killed. Right. Um, But backing up a little bit. They're not supposed to do utraj, nother murder. Murder means murder. Don't do outrage or murder. Um, so not committing murder is a really interesting and important thing, right, for knights. I mean, you'd think like killing people is their business, right? That's their that's their day job, right? Um, but there's a big difference between killing somebody and committing murder. It's a very big deal. Again, Sir Balin is a per- Sir Balin's story gives us a perfect. Um, uh, example of this, right? What Sir Garland, the Invisible Knight, did was murder. Just coming up. To, what happened to poor Sir Miles, right? The uh, uh, the lover of King Pelinor's daughter, right? Um, who 
killed herself uh, in the previous slide, or rather we were talking about in the previous slide. Um, he was murdered, right? Somebody came up and stabbed him from behind. That's murder, right? To, to kill someone in clean combat, you know, when you're both, uh, you know, you're, 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 you're both engaged in combat, that's not murder, right? Um, and often this is a f- not exactly a fine line. What, what Gawain was trying to do to the knight who begged mercy, that was murder too. Um, had he succeeded in decapitating the man, he would have been guilty of a commi- of murdering him. Needless to say, he was guilty of murdering the woman who, th- though again, you could say that was manslaughter, right? Because he wasn't intending to kill her. She just like threw herself in the way of his sword. Uh, but anyway, the point is, um, uh, murder is, murder is a big deal, but accusations of murder get thrown around. It is not uncommon, for instance, remember the debate between Sir Balin and the, and the old lady of the lake, for instance, right? Um, she was upset with him because he killed her brother. But it seems likely, knowing Sir Balin and uh, his prowess in battle, um, it sounds like he just, the, her brother was killed in battle. And she's accusing him of murder, like, you killed my brother, which he probably did kill her brother, right? Um, but he didn't necessarily murder her brother, which is his defense. Like, oh yeah, I totally killed that guy, but I didn't murder him, right? We were, we fought in fair combat. Whereas, like, you falsely accused my mother and got her burned at the stake, that's a different deal, right? Um, that is not only murder, that is also treason. Treason, you notice how often the word treason keeps coming up in this section, right? People committing treason all the time. And it is very clear that treason is not a um, treason is not a political thing. Treason is any kind of betrayal, really any kind of dishonorable act, frankly. Um, if you certainly the knight who came up behind Sir Miles and, and stabbed him in the back was, was that, that was a treasonous act on his part. Um, uh, to, uh, um, any kind of, um, um, any kind of betrayal. Um, yeah, it's, um, is it interchangeable with treachery? Well, no, Mythalio, I would say it's broader actually than treachery. Treachery, right? Treachery is when you agree to something and then you back out on it, right? Like you say, oh, I promise I won't attack you and then you attack, right? Or when you have an alliance with somebody and then you stab them in the back, right? That's treachery. Where treason, as it's used here, is much more, it's broader. I mean, those things would be treason uh, in in the way that Maori uses the word, definitely. Um, but like a cheap shot is treason, as well, like against an acknowledged enemy, not breaking an alliance or or, or backstabbing. I, I, I mean, I shouldn't say backstabbing because we've just had an instance of backstabbing, which is not the kind of thing I'm talking about. Uh, literal backstabbing. No, what I mean is, um, again, the, the 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 betrayal of trust. Tr- treachery is about the betrayal of trust to some extent or other, right? Um, uh, and that's a really big deal. But treason 
Yeah, Stephen, it is broader than those in the ninth circle of the Inferno. Yeah, no, it is. I mean, it seems to be like a, a, a knight who acts dishonorably is going to be accused of treason, right? Sir Gawain is, treason, is a treasonous knight. He is. I mean, his plan to, to murder King Pelinor, that's treason, right? And Gaharis being all like, wait till I'm a knight and then I'll help you kill him. That would be that's treason too. Let's wait till we get him somewhere alone so that we can both set on him and kill him in order to avenge our father. That's a treasonous act. Um, by the way, that Mallory is using the word um, the word treason. Um, so, so yeah, yeah. Always to flee treason. So always act honorably, right? Always be. Um, uh, always be straightforward. Always play fair. Always, um, you know, be sort of out in the open. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, some were asking about uh, what are the uh, boundaries of uh, of outrage. I don't know the legal definition of outrage. Um, I get the vague impression that um, uh, I get the vague impression that the way it specifies uh, uh, do outrage another murder uh, is specifying like murder is a subset of outrage, right? Um, like the one one that it's specifying, um, outrage being the broader category. So like never to do outrage, like don't commit crimes, right? Uh, to, to but especially violent crimes um, to, I don't know, decapitate a lady. That's an outrage, right? It's murder too, but uh, I mean, it's murder as well, I should say. Uh, but it's, uh, it's definitely outrage. Um, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I, and this is vague, and again, I could be wrong. There, there could be a, a more precise definition that I don't know of. Um, but uh, uh, but get criminal acts, essentially. Um, don't do anything criminal. Um, and don't do anything dishonorable. That's why you've got first outrage and murder, and then flee treason, right? To attack somebody at unawares um, when they're not ready for it. Um, that's treason. That's, you know, that's, 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 that's treason. It's not necessarily outrage and it might not be murder. It could be, could end up as murder. Right. Um, but it could definitely be treason. And so we've got negative things. These are the things to avoid and then give mercy unto him that asketh mercy. That's a baseline, right? Upon pain of forfeiture of their worship and lordship of King Arthur forevermore. And yes, this is the one where he's like, Sir Gawain, I'm looking at you, right? Very topical for the moment. Uh, he's making it explicitly wrong. If Gawain ever does that again, he is going to forfeit all of the worship and all of the lordship that he has of King Arthur. Um, all of the lands that Arthur has given him, all of the positions and titles that Arthur has given him, he will no longer be Arthur's vassal uh, if he will be cast out. If he does that again, anybody will be who does that again. And then we talked about the ladies um, and that no man talk no but tiles in a wrongful quarrel for no love, nay for no world is goodness. Don't battle in a wrongful quarrel. 
if you so often you're going to be fighting for a, a particular quarrel. Like quarrels are going to be resolved by battles. Um, you know, you've got two landowners who are arguing about something. How do you resolve this? You resolve this by each one of you get a champion, you have them fight, and then the outcome determines the outcome of the complaint. That's a thing that we're going to see. Of course, we'll see it very soon in the story of uh, Arthur and Akalon. But um, if you know that you are in the wrong, right? If you know that this dude is in the wrong, don't fight for him. Don't take the battle in a wrongful quarrel, neither for love nor for world is good. And this is really important because it shows um, it shows the priorities here, right? Um, worldly goods should not come above honor, right? Fighting for the, for for what is right. Love, very importantly, right? Love should not come above what is right. Um, don't fight for somebody whom you know to be in the wrong just because your beloved asked you to, right? Um, so that's, uh, um, that's important. That's interesting. Um, Yana says, there's nothing encouraging you to find out if you're championing for an honorable person. Well, no, it's about the it's about the quarrel in question, right? I mean, the person who um the person whose quarrel you're taking might be a jerk, might even be a criminal, right? But if he is in the right in that quarrel, you would it it would be defensible for you to now you might say you don't want to champion this guy because you think he's a jerk. Um but you're still fighting for the right in this case, right? Um uh, Sarah and David are both similarly asking, like, so what What does he mean by love here? Is this just about sexual love? Um, uh, David is wondering, you know, does it, you know, so like, don't fight for your brother if he's in the wrong, like, you know, like that kind of love as well. Um, I think no love could possibly encompass that, but it's almost certainly, I think in the context, it's almost certainly talking about sexual love. Um, it's talking, this is talking about those, um, you know, you still do things for your lady. Uh, that's still a thing. Again, it's as I said, it's not been a, it's not been really emphasized. This raises it here, right? Um, this prospect of love might put you know your uh, uh, your amorous entanglements might place you in this position. Don't prioritize that over what's right. That's uh, that's what this oath says. This oath is higher, has a higher priority than what you owe to your beloved, which is a big deal, which is important, I think, in the circumstances. All right, let's keep pushing along. So on a time, he, that is Merlin, of course, told to King Arthur that he, that is Merlin, should not endure long, but for all his crafties he should be put into the earth quick. Quick, of course, means alive. Quick is the opposite of dead. Uh, so he's like, I'm about to be, uh, before too long now, uh, I'm almost due for my uh, living in torment, right? I'm going to be buried alive before too long. And so he told the king, Mani thingis that should befall, but always he warned the king to keep well his sword and the scalbard, for he told him who the sword and the scalbard should be stolen by a woman from him that he most trusted. Also he told King Arthur that he should miss him, 
he, Arthur, shall miss Merlin. And yet, had ye lever than all your londes, have me again. Ah, said the king, as if he had just thought of this incredibly new and daring thought. Sin ye knew of your evil adventure, purvey for it, and put it away, be your crafties, that misadventure. Now this is a genius plan, right? Arthur's finally thought of this. Wait a second. Since you know in advance that you're going to be buried alive in the earth, why don't you, you know, plan ahead? Like, maybe avoid getting buried alive since you know it's coming, right? How about that? Try that. Um, nigh, said Merlion, it will not be. Oh. All right. Um, <laughs> so, um, uh, yeah, um, Merlin is like, it doesn't work that way, which is really interesting, especially in this context, right? Are all the things that he's told Arthur, including the one he just told Arthur, right? I mean, remember, Arthur has already given the scabbard, we were told, given the scabbard to Morgan Le Fay. Right. And here's Merlin saying, uh, some woman who shall remain nameless, who you trust a lot, shall steal the scabbard from you. So be specially careful about the scabbard. And Arthur, like, right, just, just does not think of it at all. Um, uh, Devra is asking, does he not want to bother to avoid it, Merlin, or is he taking the adventure that God shall ordain? I think it's closer to the latter, Devra, but I don't think it's... See, the... The difference between Sir Balin and Merlin, and boy, could you finish that sentence in a lot of ways, but the one difference between Balin and Merlin is that Merlin knows, right? Uh, There's like an if clause for Balin, right? Like, if this is what has to be, then I will accept the adventure that God ordains for me, right? Um, when he... Uh, Merlin, he's, there's no if, right? He knows. Like, this is what's going to happen. Um, so, like, it will not be. He's like, oh, no, you're not, you're not understanding here, right? I'm not saying, like, I think that this is a thing that might happen, in which case, like, he could purvey against it, right? Now he's like, this is, this is good. Like, it's done. This is going to happen. He's, he, he is saying this because he knows it's going to happen. It will not be. It's not going to be possible for me to put it away by my crafts. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, Dolor Stroke is a little bit disappointed in uh, uh, Merlin's lack of a response here, right? Uh, would have been great to have a little bit of a what a time travel slash prophecy discussion from Merlin about how he can't avoid being buried alive and all you get is, uh, nope, nope, not an option, right? And I'm not going to explain. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so... This is the moment we were talking about this before. This is the moment where Arthur raises this question about like, hey, maybe we should try avoiding these terrible things that you're predicting are going to happen armed with that knowledge, you know, 
But um, Merlin says it's impossible. It's just, it's not, he cannot avoid it. Um, so anyway, yeah. Um, exactly, Tarloniel. That's how the story goes. Merlin knows how the story goes. You can't change how the story goes. Um, Mallory is doing a new version of the Arthur story, but he's not just telling a wacky alternative universe version, right? It's still going to happen. I guess the one way in which it's a wacky alternative universe version is that, like, uh, uh, Sir Gawain is a uh, treasonous murderer, but apart from that, it's, you know, operating within the rules, right? Um, okay. And then it uh, comes upon him. So, okay. Um, so, the lady that Merlin falls in love with is the lady that King Pellinore brought back. So, she's the one who came in. She was the one who was making all the noise. <laughs> Remember when, when King Arthur, in one of my favorite sentences in the book, was like, oh, phew, at least finally a little peace and quiet right after the lady gets hauled away. That was Nimue, uh, who gets uh, hauled away. Um, so, King Pellinor rescues her and brings her back. Uh, and she turns out to be uh, the one, right? The one who uh, who Merlin falls in love with. At what point was she always a Lady of the Lake? Did she get promoted to Lady of the Lake at some point? Uh, was she Lady of the Lake already when she... I mean, she didn't lead with that when she came in asking for her Bratchet. Was it a Bratchet of the Lake? Right? Was this a was this a, was this this a a lake issue, right, in that earlier quest? We don't know any of those things, right? We just She's just called the Lady, the Lady, the Lady, and then suddenly she becomes the Lady of the Lake. Or uh, like he starts referring to her as the Lady of the Lake uh, later on down the road. Um, but, uh, anyway, okay. Then soon after, the laddie and Merlion departed, and by ways he showed her many wonders, and so come into Cornwall. And always he lie about to have her maidenhood, and she was ever passing weary of him, and would have been delivered of him, for she was afeard of him, for cows he was a devil's son, and she could not be skift of him by no mean. Skift is a great word, by the way. Uh, yeah, she can't be rid of him. Like, she can't be set free from him. She can't be skiffed of him. Um, yeah, she's not into you, Merlin. She is just not into you. And so, on a time, Merlion did show her, shew her in a roch, whereas was a great wonder, and rocked by enchantment that went under a great stone. So, by her subtle working, she mad Merlion to go under that stone to lat her wit of the marvels there, but she rocked so there for him that he come never out for all the craft he could do, and so she departed and left Merlion. Okay. Um. <laughs> Both Tarloniel and, uh, 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 Karita at the same time said, okay, I'm kind of on the lady's side here. Yeah, I absolutely, I absolutely get that. 
Absolutely get that. Um, Merlin is making a pest of himself, right? He is uh, 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 pressing his amorous attentions upon this lady, right? There's no two ways about it, right? He is trying to get her in bed, and she is not into him. But she is afraid to turn him away, and he won't take a hint anyway, right? Um, She says no. He won't take no for an answer. Now, he's not raping her, but he's plaguing the life out of her, right? He won't leave her. He's stalking her. So... He, uh, uh, and again, she won't, she, but she goes with him, right? She travels with him and everything because she's in a difficult place. She does not want to give in to him, but she also is afraid of him. For cows, he was a devil's son. Now, A, this is the first we've heard of this. This is the first reference to uh, Merlin being the son of a devil, that we've gotten yet. Um, now, uh, um, okay. So one other thing I would draw your attention to, he is not a son of the devil. He is a son of a devil. That is, uh, and sometimes this is said differently. Um, he's, said to be the son of a devil that is an Irish spirit, an incubus, essentially. Um, not Satan. He's not the son of Satan. He's not the Antichrist. Or it's, it's, nothing, that, it's nothing that bad. Uh, remember, um, remember when I w- we were talking way back when we were talking about uh, Igraine and why she was really happy after that comment, I was, tr- I was trying to defend Mallory's characterization of Igraine as being really happy when uh, Uther said, like, oh, yeah, no, that was me that raped you that night. Um, and, uh, yeah. So, and one of the reasons that I gave for, to explain her happiness is that it's got to be good news to her that her son with whom she's pregnant, the child with whom she's pregnant is in fact the son of a mortal, right? It kind of starts there, right? There's plenty of good news for a grain, uh, in this, in this speech of Uther, like in this, in the revelation of this fact, but, but it starts with, oh great. So I was not in fact seduced by an incubus. Point one, right? Great. Excellent. That's super important. Um, so, uh, anyway, um, that's, um, most likely what they're saying about Merlin. So no, it turns out that Arthur was not begotten by a spiritual being who took on the form of man and lay with, you know, with his mother. Um, though again, it looked bad. I mean, if you're a Igraine, you've got to be thinking that's a very serious possibility, right? Which is why, again, one reason why I'm sure she was all kinds of relieved to find out that the dude that uh, had sex with her in the shape of her husband was in fact a, 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 a human, right? That's good news. Um, so, anyway, uh, good news. Merlin apparently is, we're told, the child of a devil, one of these Irish spirits. Okay. Um, <laughs> what does that mean? What are the implications of that? No, notice, Merlin has never been there's no question of Merlin being evil, right? I mean, yeah, you know, he's uh, 
doesn't cover himself with glory in this scene here, right? Uh, in his pressing his amorous attentions upon poor Nimue, but he, um, he again, he's not like evil by nature or something. He's not like some uh, sort of twisted, morally perverted freak or something like that. In fact, he still has, he, he has his like old Testament prophet thing going on. Um, remember how we've seen him as this sort of balance of prophet and fairy, uh, you know, from the beginning, we've seen both of those elements very present in him. Um, you know, uh, Nancy, you were saying earlier that Merlin never explains things, right? Yes, and Mallory never explains Merlin. This is just tossed in there without any explanation as to what it means, what we're supposed to make of it, right? What it, what are the implications of that? We don't know. We don't know. Um, Carita, we do know that he had a master. Yeah, he did have a master. Blois was his master. So he was the apprentice to somebody. But apprentice what? Magician? Wizard? Did he learn wizardliness? Was he learning nigromancy? Well, I don't even really know. Um, but, um, yeah, is it, right, Nancy says, is that why he has these prophetic powers? <laughs> I mean, maybe. He's kind of different, right? But we don't really know. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, so, um, anyhow, it's, uh, right, Karita's wondering whether that guy was also the son of a devil. I, I, we don't, we know even much less about Blois than we know about, uh, than we know about Merlin. Um, anyway, so, yeah, uh, I'm not saying this is illuminating because it's totally not illuminating. Um, and by the way, he is not, of course, showing her a roach. He's showing her a rock. Uh, there's a great wonder under a rock. and So he's trying to impress her, right? Um, you know, thinking that, like, showing her some hidden wonders is going to, like, get her in the mood, Right? So he's like, hey, um, there are great wonders. I mean, how skanky does this sound, right? Like, hey, baby, if you come down into this subterranean cave with me, I'll show you some great wonders, right? There's some uh, great wonders wrought by enchantment down there. Trust me, just, you know, this is totally not my little love nest that I prepared in advance or something like that. And she very sensibly says, "Um, how about you go down first? I'll be right there. Right. I'll follow you down. So by subtle working, uh, she uh, she made Merlin to go under the stone to uh, un- to go under that stone to let her wait of the marvels there to, to let her wit of the marvels, to let her know of the marvels there. Like, OK, uh, go check on the marvels. Can you tell me about the marvels? Right. Go, go in and let me know about the marvels. Right. I'm so interested in the marvels, whatever they are that are under this rock there. And then while he's down there, as soon as he goes in, she wrought there for him. She so wrought there for him that he could never come out for all the craft that he could do. How? How did she... By what craft did she uh, make that happen, right? How was, how was she... How was this wrought by her? Um, by nigromancy? Possibly. I don't know. Um... 
<laughs> Dorstruck says, let me slip into something more comfortable. No, really, I'm right behind you. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, um, uh, <laughs> again, so she's a sorceress? Did he teach her this? Right? Did she get this out of him and then use it against him? Uh, does she have power for... Is she a sorceress anyway? Did she also go to the Negromancy school? Is she already the Lady of the Lake? And can she walk across the water like the old uh, former now decapitated Lady of the Lake could do? Is she a fairy queen too? Does she have a palace under this other rock? Right? Remember there was an island on that lake that had a like a magic palace underneath a rock. So like wonders under rocks are totally a thing. And even a thing associated with Ladies of the Lake... We don't even know. You know, this is she a fairy? Mike, great question. No clue, right? Absolutely no clue. Um, so, I, what we are told here in literally one sentence, right, um, is so obviously the tip of the iceberg, right? And, you know, I can't help but think. I mean, I feel sort of forced to the conclusion that Mallory is just not really interested in this stuff, right? Uh, I, there's obviously a backstory here. I mean, this is a, this is like, was this some kind of like enchanter's duel here? Was this, you know, some kind of fairy politics thing going on? I mean, is that why he fixated on her in the first place? Because... She's the Lady of the Lake, and he's this sorcerer dude who's obviously associated with fairy and knows about it and acts like a fairy and you know goes up and asks for people to give him their kids and you know as we saw in the in in the opening classes and stuff. So, you know, he has some connection with the world of fairies. She has some connection with the world of fairies. I mean, is this gets part of this whole other story that's going on, which is only tangentially interested in King Arthur's story. And Merlin is not very or not Merlin. Sorry. Uh, uh, Freudian slip. Mallory is not very interested in that story, so but we still get it because it kind of bubbles through the Arthur story. Um, but he never explains it or even really sort of thinks about it uh, at all. Um, I mean, it's uh, um, <laughs> David Atley says it's a slightly more detailed version of by means. Yes, by means she insla- she entombed him in the rock. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I definitely, these passages in Maori are so tantalizing. Um, but, uh, ultimately I always find them frustrating because again, there's so much there that he could talk about and that he obviously just absolutely does not talk about. You can tell what Mallory is more interested in. Namely, tournaments and knightly combat. That's what is really good about Arthur's story, obviously. Uh, Not this fairy magic stuff. But it's there, and it's cool. Local color. But it's not the whole story, and we don't ever... We're never going to really know who the story is. Um, See, this is the kind of thing that we like, right? Okay, so here's Sir Kay's greatest moment. We've got the war with the five kings. We've already had the war with the eleven kings, which was pretty good. And now we're going to have there's these other five kings that rise up uh, to fight against Arthur. And then they uh, 
rather foolishly, these five monarchs go riding themselves together with no accompaniment by night, right? Uh, and Sir Kay is like, hey, guys, look! So he, Sir Kay and Sir Gawain and Sir Grifflet uh, and uh, who else is there? Arthur, yeah. Arthur, right. Uh, so the four of them see these five kings riding out by night. Lo, sighed Sir Caius, yonder be thou five kinges. Let us go to them and match him. That were folly, said Sir Gawain, for we are but four, and they be five. That is truth, said Sir Grifflet. No force, said Sir Caius. I will undertake for twelve of the best of him, and then may ye three undertake for all the other three. And therewithal Sir Kai let his horse run as fast as he meeked to encounter with one of them, and struck one of the kinges through the shield and also the body a fadom, and the king fell to the earth stark dead. That saw Sir Gawain, and ran unto another king so hard that he smote him down and threw the body with a spear that he fell to the earth dead. And on, Sir Arthur ran to another and smote him through the body with a spear that he fell to the earth dead. Then Sir Griffillet ran to the fourth king and gaff him such a fall that his neck brack in sunder. In sunder? Like literally in sunder? Like his head rolled away? Anyway, Thon Sir Kai ran unto the fifth king and smote him so hard on the helm that the stroke clave the helm and, he and head to the earth. That was well stricken, said King Arthur, and worshipfully hast thou hold thy promise. Therefore I shall honor thee while that I live. Um, uh, my guess, a fathom, a, a, a fathom. So yeah, his, his spear is sticking out. Uh, a fathom uh, uh, length out the back of the, 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 the king there. Uh, so Deborah says these kings were just minding their own business, right? Well, no. I mean, they're, they're, they're the aggressors. They've taken the field against Arthur, right? Um, now, like, they're not necessarily out harassing the countryside here together, um, but this is under declaration of war. This is not treason, right? Um they, uh, they, 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 this is fair knightly combat, um, you know, sort of knight to knight and monarch to monarch. Um, now, David, you'll notice that King Arthur is often called Sir Arthur, especially when he's acting as a knight. When you see Arthur in combat, especially in knightly adventurous combat, not in, uh, in like battle, like in military battle. He's often called Sir Arthur and not King Arthur. Um, so, um, anyway, yeah. So, uh, Dolores, uh, Dolores wondering, were the kings even trying to fight back? I think, yes. I, I think that, that, that they are. Um, why is it not mentioned? Like, why doesn't it talk about it? I, this is just showing how one-sided this was. I don't think it means that the, like the, f the five kings are being taken completely at unawares and just, you know, stabbed through like as if by Sir Garland, the invisible knight, um, that I do not believe is what's happening here. Um, this is clearly everyone took, you know, speaks of this as a very honorable and worshipful combat. I think the reason that only the blows of the good guys are detailed here is that only theirs count, right? This is just showing how, uh, marvelously one-sided this encounter ended up going. Um, so, but this is, this is, remember this, because this is the high water mark of Sir Kay's worship, right? Um, 
Don't forget, Sir Kay is not going to be a wonderful character for the whole rest of the story, right? He is not going to distinguish himself. Uh, and in fact, there will be times when he will do quite the reverse. But we must always remember this moment, right? Sir Kay is not just a lifelong loser who has his position through nepotism, right? Uh, Sir Kay proved himself here, uh, not only by the, wor the, the, the work that he did here, um, but by boasting a, a great boast and then fulfilling it, right? That was really a big deal. Um, okay. So that now we're choosing the Knights of the Round Table. Um, and uh, so there were... There was the final choice. So Sir Grifflet and Sir Gawain get put onto the 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 the, uh, the round table, which is great. Um, but there's only one more seat, and there's the choice between Sir Tor and Sir Bagdemagus, which is I'm quite sure how you're not supposed to pronounce it, but it's too much fun for me not to pronounce it that way, so I always do. Um, anyway, so Sir Bagdemagus and Sir Tor are the two candidates, and uh, uh, Arthur chooses Sir Tor at the advice of King Pellinor, who does the whole, like, I shouldn't say anything because I'm his father, so I wouldn't say anything except if I did say something, this is totally what I would say. And Arthur is like, I completely agree with that thing that you didn't officially say, so I'm going to choose Sir Tor and leave Sir Bagdemagus um, uh, for later. Um, okay, so. And so they were set in sages, whereof Sir Bagdemagus was wonderly wroth that Sir Tor was avounced afore him. There's somebody being wonderly wroth again, right? We haven't seen that in a while. And therefore suddenly he departed from the court and took his squire with him and rode long in a forest till they come to a cross, and there he alicked and sighed his prayers devoutly. The meanwhile his squire found written upon the cross that Bagdemagus should never return unto the court again till that till he had won a canique of the table round body for body. Lo, said his squire, here I find writing of you. Therefore I read you, return again to the court. That shall I never, said Bagdemagus, till men speak of my right great worship, and that I be worthy to be a knight of the rune table. And so he rode forth, and there by the way he found a branch of holy herb that was the sign of the Sancreal, and no knight found no such tokens, but he were a good liver and a man of prowess. No, that has nothing to do with his liver, Arthur. I know what you're thinking. And so, as Sir Bagdemagus rode to see many adventures, so it happened him to come to the rock, whereas the Laddie of the Lock had put... Here she's the Lady of the Lake now. The Laddie of the Lock had put Merlion under the stone, and there he heard him mock a great dole. That is, Bagdemagus heard Merlin making a great dole. Remember, Merlin is quick in the rock. He's alive. He's not killed. He's trapped alive. Uh, let's see. Wherefore Sir Bagdemagus would have halted him, and went unto the great stone, and it was so heavy that an hundred men make not lift it up. When Merlion wist that he was there, he bade him leave his labor, for all was in vain. For he make never be holpen, but by her that put him there. And so Bagdemagus departed, and did many adventure, and prayed after a full good knight, and come again to the court, and was mad a knight of the rune table. So on the morn there befell new tidings and many other adventures. Okay, so um, 
first of all, I love that the first thing that happens, notice several consequences of life after Merwin's departure, right? One, Arthur has to make a decision, which I'm not sure he makes the right call here, right? Um, I mean, we don't know how old Sir Bagdemagus is, but you kind of get the feeling that he's being passed over for the new guy that everybody's excited about, right? Um, so, like, was this the right decision? I mean, in the end, Sir Bagdemagus is going to be a knight of the round table eventually anyway, but, you know, the, the, it's, it's not clear. It's not clear that uh, Arthur made the right call here. And you know Merlin would have had an opinion, right? Merlin would have told him, like, oh, no, 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 here's what you should do, Right. Now Arthur doesn't have Merlin anymore, and so what are the consequences? He alienates this knight who would otherwise have been a loyal knight and who swears off going back to Arthur's court. But when, as soon as he does, what happens? Right? He comes to a, he comes to a cross in the road, and his squire is like, um, Sir, there's writing on this cross that says what's going to happen to you, right? He stumbles across some classic Merlin graffiti where Merlin came along with his gold pen and was like, Sir Bagdemagus will uh, uh, never return to Arthur's court until he had won a night of the table round body for body. And you know that Merlin came to this place and wrote it there on that cross because he knew this was where Sir Bagdemagus was going to end up when he left the the, the court in a huff, right? So, because uh, he knows this kind of thing, just like he knows that this tomb, you know, this random tomb is going to be the site of the great battle between Sir Lancelot and Sir Tristram, right? So, uh, so, so on the one hand, we see the lack of Merlin, and on, but on the other hand, there's never really a lack of Merlin, right? He is purveyed for this. He couldn't purvey against his own uh, entombment, but by golly, he could uh, put a few, sprinkle a few of these prophecies around so that people will know about this. Um, and uh, uh, anyway, so um, and then of course, Sir Bagdemagus finds Merlin himself. So we get this reminder. There's Merlin, still alive. It makes me wonder why uh, somebody doesn't um, why somebody doesn't go down and uh, like visit <laughs> Merlin. Like you still ask his advice on stuff. Like, hey Merlin, how, how's it going on to the rock? Right? Yeah. So I got a little. I got I, I got a few items right that I wanted to ask your opinion on. You could still totally do that. Um, but uh, yeah, Veronica. No, it's not clear that Back to Max tells anybody. I mean, no one. I think Merlin's going to, I think he's done. I think this, um, don't bother digging, uh, because nobody can get me out of here except for her who put me in. I think, I kind of think those are going to be Merlin's last words if I don't remember correctly, but I mean, unless I remember correctly, incorrect, Never mind. You know what I mean? Um, I think that's, uh, those are his last words. Um, yeah. Okay. Hey, look, we get to start Arthur and Echelon. Okay. Yeah, no, let's go ahead and start this. Okay, so King Arthur and Sir Echelon uh, and Sir Uriens, right? This is this is an auspicious grouping, right? So Morgan Le Fay's half-brother, the king, Morgan Le Fay's husband, the other king, uh, who is the vassal of King Arthur, and... Morgan Le Fay's uh, adulterous lover all go out hunting together, right? Does this sound sound like a a classic setup or what? Okay, fine. So they they come across a ship. Um, 
they come to a body of water and they see a boat and there's no it's a it's a fantastic look it's a richly uh, 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 arrayed boat right they go on to the ship and there's nobody there in the ship right um and but when they go out though there's no one in the ship the ship magically departs and sails off with them right um this is this is this is this is classic right um if you uh if you are a knight and you see a a boat a rich boat just sitting there waiting for you you get in it obviously like it's what you're supposed to do um this is a this is a classic trope we see it in uh in 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 several earlier um chivalric romances sears sighed the king who has c- clearly read all the right books come thence and let us see what is in this ship so at the last they went into the ship all three and found it richly behanged with cloth of silk so by that remember silk is very rare and precious so by that time it was dirk night and there suddenly was about them an hundred torches set upon all the ship borders and it gave great light and therewithal there come twelve fire damsels, and saluted King Arthur on his knees, and called him by his name, and said he was reeked welcome, and such cheer as they had he should have of the best. Then the king thanked them fire. Therewithal they led the king and his fellows into a fire chamber, and there was a rich cloth. A cloth lied richly beseen of all that longed to a table, and there were they served of all wines and meats that they could think of. But of, let's see, oh sorry, but of that, right? But of that, the king had great marvel, for he never fared better in his life as for one supper. And so, when they have supped at Herlizer. King Arthur was lad unto a chamber, a richer beseen chamber, saw he never none. And so was King Uriens servid, and lad into another chamber. And so Achelon was slad into the third chamber, passing richly and well beside. And so were they lied in their beds easily, and anon they fell on sleep, and slept marvellously sore all the nicht. So this adventure is going great so far, right? Here you are stranded on a hunt, right? And you're like, what do you do? And we're like, oh, we'll just keep going, right? And hope that something happens. And you find the magic boat and the magic boat takes you somewhere. You don't know where it is, but that's okay. Because when you get there, you're met by these 12 fair damsels and all the magic lights. And they bring you in and give you the best supper you've ever had in your life. And then they take you and then you're put into a great bed and have an awesome night's sleep. This is a fantastic adventure so far. And on the morn, King Uriens was in Camelot, a bed in his wife's armies, Morgan le Fay. And when he woke, he had great marvel how he come there, for on the even before he was twa days' journey from Camelot. And when King Arthur awoke, he found himself in a dirk prison, herring about him many complaintes of woeful connectis. So, there we go. Um, this is, um, uh, it turned out not so well after all, right? It was all a front. It was all a deceit, lulling him into complacency. And then he finds himself in a dark prison where obviously many other knights have gone before him. Um, 
he fell for the old magic boat trick. Again, often that's legit. We'll see, we'll see this. This is not the last time we will see somebody get into a magic boat. Um, uh, this time it was a deception, right? Uh, and he was only being taken off his guard. Okay. And of course, it's uh, Morgan Le Fay at the back of all of this. So... Of course, they end up fighting the duel. Now, keep in mind, notice when uh, uh, we, we get an immediate example, Yana, as you were suggesting before, of the whole, like, don't fight in a wrongful quarrel thing. Um, Arthur agrees to fight for Sir Damas against Sir Onslake. Um, when it's clear that Sir Onslake is the good guy and Sir Damas is the bad guy, but it's also clear that Sir Damas actually has the right. He's the older son, right? So that he is probably in the right, in their dispute about the land. He's just a jerk uh, and won't fight for himself against Sir Onslake, his brother, uh, and uh, is uh, acting very treasonously um, uh, and and uh, keeping these knights wrongfully in prison and starving them to death. That would be outrage, I think, and murder. Uh, but uh, anyway, so he's a bad guy, but I think in the right about this quarrel, as, I, as Arthur will reveal. If you remember... Um, his um, his finding at the end. He gives Sir Damis the land. He says, but, but you're going to let Sir Onslake use it, and he's going to pay you rent for it. And the rent that he's going to pay you is one palfrey per year, because it better befits you to ride a palfrey than a courser, right? You get an effeminate little riding horse. You shouldn't have a war horse because you don't deserve it because you're a wuss, right? Um, so I'm going to technically uh, agree that you're in the right. I was fighting for you and you're in the right, but I'm going to not let you profit by that. And I'm going to insult you too at the same time is how Arthur um, sort of resolves it in the end. Um, yeah. Okay. So anyway, Akalon, you know, uh, uh, Sir Icon, of course, is fighting for Sir Onslake, who would fight for himself, but he got pierced through both sides, which is an through both thighs, which is an occupational hazard, uh, and um, he's not going to be the last knight who's going to find himself in that position. And um, anyway, so here, here they are fighting together, uh, and Akalon is given Excalibur and the scabbard of Excalibur, very importantly. And um, so Arthur has just figured this out, right? His own sword has broken. He has taken Excalibur uh, from Akalon. Remember how that happened? How did he get Excalibur away? Remember how Akalon ended up dropping Excalibur during the battle? Because Nimue came along, the other lady of the lake, and, you know, Merlin's lady of the lake, and uh, did not want Arthur to die. So she intervened with her crafties, which she definitely seems to have now, and... Uh, uh, led Akalon to drop the sword, and then Arthur takes the sword after he's already been, like, you know, beating Akalon about the head and neck with the pommel of his broken sword, right? Um, anyway, uh, yeah, so, okay, so, um, so we already see Nimue, she seems to be a pretty stand up lady of the lake, actually. Um, uh, really a counterpart here uh, to Morgan Le Fay, who has. Uh, and she's helping to undo this whole scheme. So keep in mind one of the other rules that we're seeing very much in force here. Nobody 
can recognize anybody in combat. Like, it's just not possible. Uh, notice even after... This passage is Akalon answering the question, who are you and where did you get this sword, right? Um, Arthur's already taken his helmet off and he's still asking him who he is. Like, even with his helmet off, he doesn't recognize him. Right now, maybe because he already bashed his face up so badly with the pommel of his sword. But anyway, that's particularly comical. But of course, Akalon still has no idea that it's King Arthur that he's been fighting with. Uh, even though you'd think they might be close enough that he could recognize his face or that he might recognize his voice, it never happens. Almost nobody ever recognizes anybody's face or voice if you're in armor, right? Um, it's one of the rules. A knight in armor is almost perfectly indistinguishable from any other knight in armor. Okay. Now, sir, said Akalon, I will tell you. This swear hath been in my keeping the most party of this twelve month, and Morgan le Fay, King Urien's wife, sent it me yesterday by a dwarf to, to the intent to slay King Arthur, her brother. For ye shall understand that King Arthur is the man in the world that she hateth most, because he is most of worship and of prowess of any of her blood. That's why she hates him, because he's most of worship and prowess of any of her blood meaning he shows up all the rest of her blood? Is that the point? She grudges him his success? That's why she hates him most? Hmm. Also, she loveth me out of measure as paramour, and I her again. And if she make bring it about to slay Arthur by her craftis, she would slay her husband, King Uriens, leakly. And then had she devised to have me king in this land, and so to reign, and she to be my queen. But that is no done, said Acalon, for I am sure of my death. Well, sighed King Arthur, I feel by you ye would have been king of this land, yet it yet hit had be great damage to have destroyed your lord, said Arthur. It is truth, said Acalon, but now I have told you the truth. Wherefore, I pray you, tell me of whence ye are, and of what court. Yeah, you probably should have led with that, Sir Akalon, I gotta say. Um, uh, yes, <laughs> Sarah Grant is wondering if there's a, a silver chair somewhere involved in this scheme. Uh, yeah, you know, those witches, Sarah, you you know, they're, they're always up to no good, aren't they? Um, you can never trust those northern witches. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, it is, actually, I, I hadn't been thinking of the silver chair parallel with King, uh, Prince Rillian, but it is a little bit like that. I mean, it's not the, like, stolen air part of it, but uh, uh, there is a certain similarity here. Um, obviously, Morgan Le Fay is guilty of treason in every sense, right? Um, she hates him. She is trying to kill him. He now has this confirmation, which arguably he should have suspected before, uh, that she is actively trying to kill him. Um, he has had, Akalon has had Arthur's sword, has had Excalibur for the most part of a 12 month, right? Most of the last year, Arthur's been using a fake Excalibur, right? That dummy Excalibur that uh, Merlin gave to him. And Akalon has, or had, the scabbard until Arthur rips it away from him in the middle of the battle so that suddenly his wounds begin to bleed. Um, yeah, so 
Morgan Le Fay is now officially outed as a villainess. So she immediately goes home and tries to kill King Urians because cat's out of the bag now, right? So you might as well at least kill your husband on the way out, I guess. It seems to be her rationale. Um, but the maid, right, her lady, her lady-in-waiting tell, warns their son, King Uwain, King King Sir Uwain, right, um, that um, his, her, his mom's about to kill his dad, right? So he goes and uh, uh, she tells him, and this is his response to the maid, well, sighed Sir Uwain, go on your why and let me deal. By the way, this is a phrase that I have all, that I have always loved. Uh, I, I I quote I I say this all the you know Sir Wayne is not the only one who's going to use this phrase. This is a phrase that comes up quite a bit in Maori, uh, and I love it. I use this all the time. Um, let me deal. Um, uh, uh, you know, like so I'll be. Uh, I'll be in the kitchen after dinner and my wife will say, do you need help with the dishes? And I say, no, you go ahead upstairs and let me deal. Uh, it's, it's such a, it's such a, a generally useful and applicable phrase. I love that phrase. Anyway, go on your way and let me deal. Anon the damsel brought the queen the sword with quacking hondas, and leakly she took the sword, that is the queen, not the damsel, and pulled it out and went boldly unto the bed's side, and awaited how and where she might slay him best. She's like aiming for various vital parts of his anatomy. And as she haved up the sweater to smite, Sir Uwain leapt under his motor, and couched it by the hond, and sighed, Ah, fiend, what wilt thou do? And thou... And what wilt thou do? And thou wert not my motor. With this sword I shall smite off thine head. Ah, said Sir Owain, men said that Merlion was begotten of a fiend, but I may say an earthly fiend bar me. Ah, fair son Owain, have mercy upon me. I was tempted with a fiend, wherefore I cry thee mercy. I will never more do so, and save my worship, and discover me not. On this covenant, said Sir Owain, I will forgive you, so ye will never be about to do such deeds. Nigh, son, and that I make you assurance. Okay, so her argument, right? Her defense, like she's pretty much caught in the middle of the act here, raising up the sword above her husband in order to kill him. Uh, you know, she can't very well say, I, I'm not going to kill dad, right? He's saying, if you were not my mom, I would have already decapitated you, right? Uh, because you're obviously guilty here. And here's Uwain. I'm like Merlin, right? They say that Merlin was begotten of a fiend, but I may say an earthly fiend bear me, right? Um, Merlin might have been begotten by a devil. His father might have been a devil. I was born by an earthly fiend. Uh, you are... Uh, that's, uh, that's harsh. Uh, you know, tough but fair, arguably. Her defense. Fair son of wine, have mercy. I was tempted with a fiend. Wherefore, I cry thee mercy. Uh, she's not exactly saying the devil made me do it. She's not claiming to be possessed by a devil or something. She is saying that she was egged on to this by a devil. Right? So what she seems to be doing is she seems to be trying to take his objection, to take his... Um, um, you know, he's saying this is a fiendish thing. This is a vile, wicked, uh, like a devilish act. 
that I've caught you in the middle of. Um, this proves that you are like an earthly fiend yourself. You are as wicked as a devil, he is saying to her. And she's like, oh, it's devil, right. Yeah, no, it was a demon. It was totally a demon who suggested this, right? I was tempted with a fiend. So I was influenced by a devil, but um, uh, therefore, wherefore I cry you mercy, like have mercy on me. I, 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 I'm like totally swearing off, you know, relationships with devils and uh, I, I won't take their advice on this score anymore. Um, that's her defense. And he's like, okay, if you promise to stop murdering people and never kill dad again, then uh, uh, I will notice. She asks him to save her worship and discover me not right. Don't tell anybody, right. Save my worship. Her reputation is really going to be in the hopper, right. If it gets out that she tried to murder his, her husband in his bed. Um, yeah. I won't listen to devils anymore. I promise. Promise. Um, <laughs> Sarah Grant says, no, no more murderous satanic plots, mom. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah yes, son. I, I think I promise. No more. I, 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 I mock you assurance. Um, but now Sarah, yes, and I agree. Um, Morgan does have more agency uh, than a lot of other women. She, she is, she is a strong woman character. No two ways about that, right? She doesn't just arrange uh, somebody to murder uh, on her behalf. I mean, she does that too, right? With Akalon, using Akalon as a tool uh, to kill Arthur. Um, but she, she's going to kill her husband with her own hands, right? <laughs> Good talk, says Milthal. Yeah. Okay, mom. Thank, thank, I, I think that went well. Um, yeah. But I mean, what are you going to do, right? What are you going to do when you discover that, you know, your mother is Morgan Le Fay, right? It's tough. Poor Sir Uwain. Well, later on, of course, Arthur tracks her down and, and we have a chase, that chase scene, right, where he is coming after her. She still has the scabbard. She comes to him, right, and is going to kill him in his sleep, Arthur. Um, uh, but And she's going to steal Excalibur again, but he's sleeping with Excalibur naked in his hand. Uh, but uh, stupidly, because, you know, he's doing what Merlin exactly told him not to do and valuing the sword more than the scabbard, he leaves the scabbard untended, right? So she takes the scabbard and runs off. He wakes up. They have a chase scene. Uh, Than she rode into a valley where many great stones were, and when she saw she must be overtuck, she shop herself, horse and man, by enchantment, into a great un, unto great marble stones, and anon withal come King Arthur and Sir Outlock, whereas the king the the king meeked knew his sister, and her men, and on knicked from another, ah, said the king. Here may ye see the vengeance of God, and now I am sorry this misadventure is befall. Okay, so being pursued, being overtaken by Arthur and Sir Outlake, um, Morgan Le Fay desperately conceals herself, right? Uh, by enchantment, she shapes herself and her retainers into the shape of great marble stones. Um, and yeah, I'd, in my uh, in my title, uh, my subtitle here, The White Witch Knows This Trick Too, it is this passage that C.S. Lewis was uh, clearly alluding to uh, when uh, the White Witch and her dwarf are disguised as a rock and a stump, right? When uh, Aslan's 
people come upon them and rescue Edmund, right, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Um, uh, yeah, her disguising herself as a rock is is, uh, is very, you know, yeah, Jadis the White Witch, so she's not called Jadis because it's still The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And, of course, since The Magician's Nephew is book six, so that hasn't happened yet. But anyway, um, yeah, yeah, that, that scene is very much a reference to this. But notice the difference. Uh, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, she just looks like a rock, like a boulder, Right. Um, So that she and the dwarf are completely overlooked um, by the rescue team that shows up and takes Edmund away here. She seems to be shaping herself into um, into marble stones. She looks like a statue. So we have like the other element of the White Witch, actually, because notice King Arthur comes and he knows her. He recognizes like, oh, look, a statue of my sister, Morgan Le Fay. And look at all these knights. I recognize all these knights, right? And he says, here may ye see the vengeance of God. So Arthur thinks they have been turned into stone miraculously by God, right? That God has smitten them down in a miracle. And he's like, oh, now I feel a little bad about that, right? I'm sorry this misadventure is befall. I, I wish they hadn't been turned into stone. But she was only faking having been petrified. So again, so she's not disguising herself as a boulder. She is disguising herself as a statue and is taken, um, uh, is taken for a, for a statue. Um, and no, David, she can't undo her own enchantment. It's just a ruse. Um, she is in fact going to come out of it and she's going to taunt Arthur about it afterwards explicitly. Um, yeah, Stephen thinks that uh, uh, Arthur is confusing Morgan for Lot's wife. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Something like that. Um, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so no, this is not permanent. Arthur thinks it's permanent. And so he rides off and he's like, well, that's the end of that story. Now, what he does next is look for the scabbard and he can't find the scabbard. So he goes back and he's like, well, scabbard is lost. My sister's a statue. So I guess like, you know, sad to lose the scabbard, but I guess this story's over. Right. But never was he more wrong. Um, okay, uh, let's leave this. That was the, the beginning of uh, Sir Gawain and Sir Uwain and Sir Marhalt's adventures. Uh, but we'll come to that. It's not too bad. We'll just, we'll, I, I want to talk about Sir Gawain's adventure because Sir Gawain's adventure is especially scandalous, which should probably not surprise us at this point. Uh, but then after that, we'll move on. So where we are moving on, uh, that is the, uh, the next thing I would like to emphasize. So um, we're coming, we've, come almost to the end of that first section, which I was going to do in six classes and we've done in a little more than eight, uh, but that's fine. Um, I have uh, laid out the next few, just just a few more classes down the road. We'll see how these go. Uh, the next two sections, um, that is the, uh, the tale of King Arthur and the Emperor Lucius, uh, which we're going to do in two classes is the plan. And then I would like to do the, the book of Sir Lancelot du Lac, uh, in one class, if we can, it's pretty short. Uh, one adventure of Sir Lancelot. Um, and we'll see, that should take us through, by my projections, that should take us through uh, the um, uh, the end of September. So we'll see where we are at that point, and then I'll regroup, and we'll con- I'll continue sort of rolling out the schedule a little bit ahead of us as we go along. Um, so anyway, thank you guys for joining us, uh, for joining me today. Uh, and I look forward to continuing with the highly improbable historical adventure of King Arthur becoming the, uh, Roman empire, Roman emperor, which we will get to next time. Thanks everybody. Good night now. 
See you next week.